Our church is not meeting today because of public health concerns related to the coronavirus, so we decided to record the message that was scheduled to be preached from our sermon series in 1 Corinthians and make it available online. 1 Corinthians is one of the apostolic letters that you'll find in the New Testament. And in the portion of this letter that we're looking at today, we hear the Apostle Paul calling Christians to honor God with their bodies, specifically with regard to their sexual conduct. So let me read the passage for us. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the Lord's word. What I'd like to do to break down this passage is, is uh, divided into three different points. Um, I'd like to talk about the beauty of sex. Then secondly, the brokenness of sex. And then finally, I want to look at God's word to sexually broken people. So the beauty, then the brokenness, and then what, what God says to us in our brokenness. So we'll start with the beauty of sex. A common misperception about Christianity is that the Christian faith has a very low regard for the importance of human sexuality. And that, that the stereotype is that Christians are prudes, they think that sex is dirty, the Bible says that the sex is bad, that just in general, God, God is against the idea of human sexual flourishing. That's the stereotype. And that stereotype could not possibly be farther from the truth. The Christian faith is not anti-sex. In fact, in the very next chapter, chapter 7, we find the apostles scolding married couples in the church for not having sex enough. So Christianity is not against sex. In fact, what you'll find when you study the Bible is that the biblical view of human sexuality is much, much higher than the view that's held by most cultures in the world. For example, in uh, first century Corinth, which was the culture of the people who are addressed in, in this letter, in, in their culture, sex was primarily viewed as merely a physical activity that satisfies physical desire. So promiscuity was broadly accepted for the men, not for the women. Prostitution was widely available. And, and the general... The general view of sex is summarized by a saying that Paul quotes in verse 13, that the saying they had was, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And they, they said that referring to sex. You know, in other words, they, they, they viewed sex, it's just a way to satisfy an appetite. If you're, if you're feeling hungry, you eat. If you're feeling thirsty, you drink. If you're, if you're, if you're feeling in the mood for sex, you have sex, right? Food, food for the stomach, the stomach for food, and you know, 
uh, the body for sex. That this was their view of, of sex. And their view is not really that different from a view that many in our culture have today with the uh, pervasive use of pornography, the, the hookup culture, friends with benefits, and even, even just the, the widespread belief among, among many people that you don't, you don't really have to be married to someone to go to bed with them. That's what a lot of people would, would view this. So our view of sex, it's, it's not that different from what was held by many people in ancient Corinth. In fact, a few years ago, Rolling Stone magazine uh, published a two-part article uh, focused on the sexual... The sexual uh, philosophy and the sexual practices among millennials, and they quote one young man who, who said this, he said, sex is just one part of a human body touching another part of a human body. He said, it's essentially meaningless. So that, that's, that's the, uh, the way sex was seen in, in ancient Corinth. They had a very low view of the importance of sex, food for the stomach, the stomach for food, you know, and uh, the body for sex. Now, in contrast to that, the biblical view of sex is much, much higher. In, in the Bible, God, God views sex as so much more important than that. So according to the Bible, your body is not just a temporary shell, shell that's inhabited by, by your soul. According to the Bible, as a human being, you are both soul and body united together. That's what a human being is. It's a, it's a unity of soul and body. The apostle reminds them of, of this in verse 14. He reminds them of the resurrection, what they're looking forward to. He says, God raised the Lord. He's talking about Jesus. God raised the Lord and he will also raise us up by his power. He, he's just reminding these believers that, that our bodies are so important to God and they're so important to who we are as human beings that God's plan someday is to raise our bodies from the dead and restore them to completely. So that means the hope that we have as believers is that for the rest of eternity, we will always be what? We will always be human beings. We will be souls and bodies united together. So a human being is, it's, is not just a spirit, temporary inhabiting a, a, you know, a meaningless mass of bone and muscle. A human being created in the image of God is soul and body joined together. Here's the implication of that. Since your soul and your body are united together, you cannot have sex with your body and leave your soul parked outside. When, when, when people have sex together, much, much more than just their bodies are touching, whether they intend this to happen or, or, or not, Sex, sexual intimacy, it, it, this involves our whole beings, all of who we are. You see Paul uh, explaining this in verse 16. He says, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. So sexual intercourse, it involves much more than just our bodies. It involves a sharing of intimacy at the deepest level between two whole people, body and soul, uh, meet uh, in, in, in this regard. This, this, is why, this is why sexual sexual assault wounds people so deeply. 
If someone has been touched inappropriately in that way, you would never just say, oh, it was just physical contact. It was just a touch. No, it's a deep, deep wound. When, when, and this is, why, this is why the Bible limits sexual intimacy um, only to the, the, the context of the covenant commitment of marriage. In verse 13 and 18, you see that term sexual immorality. The term uh, sexual immorality is, is a, it's, it's one word in the Greek that refers to, basically it's a catch-all phrase for any sexual behavior that takes, takes place outside the context of a heterosexual marriage. So any, any sexual behavior that's not shared between a husband and a wife, the Bible calls that immoral, prohibited by God. Now, why, why does the Bible do that? Because God has a low view of sex? No. Because he has an extremely high view. Of sex because because sex it's more than just the touching of body sex is a sharing of one's whole self with another person and to share one's whole self with another person without having committed one's whole self to that person it falls way way f- short of the beautiful thing that God designed sex to be so in this passage we see the beauty of sex secondly we see the brokenness of sex You'll see this passage calling Christians in verse 18 to flee from sexual immorality. Now, a question is this. Why is a passage like this one in the Bible? Why do you you find in the Bible Christians being told that they need to avoid sexual immorality? And and by the way, this is not an isolated case. Um, There are at least around 18 books in the New Testament that, that deal in some way with the subject of sexual immorality. You find it throughout the New Testament. So why is this? Now, the, the New Testament was written to Christians. This was not written to the pagan world. This, this was written to people who loved Jesus, who were following Christ, who were committed to him. So here's the question. Why would Christians need passages that talk about sexual immorality? I'll tell you why. Because we are broken. We all are. Christians struggle with this, with this topic. They struggle, struggle with sexual purity. Some, we struggle in different ways. Some struggle with pornography. Some struggle to keep their thought life clean. Some struggle with the pull of, of inappropriate relationships. Uh, so, some struggle with feelings of attraction toward members of the, of the same sex. Some, some will struggle with wandering eyes or wandering hearts, even, even though they're married. A Christian author named Deborah Hirsch wrote this. She said, every human being on this planet is sexually broken. Everyone's orientation is disoriented. Not one of us is excluded. We are all, in some way, we are all broken. And this passage tells us that this this brokenness in us, it's very, very serious. The end of verse 18, the apostle writes this. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body now this is not saying that sexual sin is is worse than any other kind of sin it's not saying that it's saying that that, that sexual sin it damages us deep inside in ways that other sins don't you know, a, a common thought in our culture today is that you know as long as as long as you prevent pregnancy and as long as you, you protect against disease and as, and, and as long as you know, all the parties involved are consenting adults, listen, no one gets hurt by whatever you do sexually. The Bible says that's not true. The Bible says that sexual sins, 
Sexual intimacy expressed outside the context of marriage, it leaves you broken deep inside. It, Proverbs chapter 6 is a, a passage warning ancient Hebrew young men against the pull of sexual temptation. And there's a verse in Proverbs 6 that says this, Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? And, and the obvious answer to those questions is no. And the implication is that, listen, neither can a man or a woman violate God's creational design for sex with, without in some sense being seriously hurt. Um, Steve Gallagher is a Christian counselor who is, um, he's dedicated his life to working to help men find freedom from sexual sin. And uh, here's a description he wrote of, uh, of men who come to him broken by sin that they've made. I'm sure you could say something similar about women. But here's what he writes. He says, here's a picture of the man who's been involved in pornography and or fornication. His soul has been crushed to pieces by the destructive nature of sin. Proper perspectives of sexuality have been warped and distorted. Evil has penetrated his heart with spiritual darkness. Spiritually speaking, he's fallen off a three-story building. He's still alive, but he's all busted up inside. Now, I don't think everyone feels that way uh, from their sexual sin, um, but according to this one counselor, many, many people, this is the result of it. And uh, there may be some aspect of that um, description that you think kind of talks about you. All of us have uh, areas of, uh, of ourselves that are kind of busted up, broken on the inside because of the problem of sexual sin. So the passage talks about the beauty of sex. It talks about the brokenness of sex. And, and then finally, I, w- I want to point out God's word, God's good word to sexually broken people. So what, what, what does God have to say? What does God have to say to people who have sinned sexually or who are feeling broken because of uh, the bad decisions they made with, with regard to their sexuality? Well, what is God's word? First, God's word is a word of grace. It's a word of grace. Uh, last week, we saw that there were members of the church in Corinth who had come from backgrounds of lifestyles that were filled with sexual sin. Uh, we read in earlier in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians that some of them had been fornicators and some of them had been adulterers and some of them had been caught up in a, a homosexual lifestyle. So th- these are the backgrounds of many of the people in the church Paul was writing to. And did you notice what the apostle said to those people in today's passage? Verse 20, he said, You were bought with a price. You you were bought. He's just saying that, listen, even though you've made really bad decisions with regard to your sexual conduct, he's telling them, Christ Jesus died on the cross for you. He had died for them. And every believer in Christ can be confident of this. No matter how we might have sinned sexually, Jesus Christ died for us. Romans 5 verse 8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Knowing all of our sin, all of our shame, all of the ways that we would fail him throughout our life, Jesus chose to pay the price of his own life so that we could be his people, to make us his own. Um, 
years years ago in a church where I was pastoring, uh, a young woman from the congregation made an appointment to meet with me at the church office. This, this was a, a, a young single woman who was a very, uh, very committed Christian, very devoted to the Lord, um, just in love with Christ. And she was dating a, a, a Christian young man uh, moving towards engagement. And she walked into the church office to meet with me and just burst into tears, just, just so deeply sad about something. And she shared with me that as she and her boyfriend were approaching marriage, she revealed to him that she was not a virgin. And when he heard that, he immediately said, the engagement's off, this relationship is over. Uh, so she had, she had shared uh, this, this, this tender part of her story, uh, uh, um, a part of her story that brought some pain and some shame to her, shared this with someone she loved, and she had been rejected. And what, I, what every believer in Christ needs to know, listen, believer, Jesus will never, ever do that to you. He will never reject you because of your sexual history. He will never reject you because of your sexual sin. He, he will never reject you for these. For, he, will not, he won't do this for anyone who comes to him trusting in Christ. When we come to Christ in faith and repentance, no matter where we've been, who we've slept with, what we've done, no matter how many times, no matter even if we're still struggling with this, when we come to Christ with faith, He receives us with open arms. Isn't that good news? First, First John one verse seven says, "The blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin." And my my favorite word in that verse is the word "all." The blood of Christ doesn't just cleanse us from some sin. It doesn't just cleanse us from, from, from most sin. It, he cleanses us from all sin in our life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. So if you are in Christ, you are trusting in him. No, no, matter, how you, no matter how you failed in, in your life, even if the failure took place last night, Go to Christ, confess it to him, trust in him, and then go look in the mirror and say, I am a new creation. I am new in Christ. The old, it's gone. I'm new in him. So the first, the first part of God's word to sexually broken people that you see in this passage is, is a word of grace. You were bought at a price. God knew every, everything, every sin of your life, past, present, and future. He loved you anyway and chose to give his son for you. So there's a word of grace. Secondly, it's a word of freedom. Freedom. The, the word gospel means good news. It's the good news of what God does for us in Christ. And really, the gospel, the good news, has two important parts to it. The, the, the first part is, when, you come, when we come to Christ, God takes us just the way we are. Okay. The second part is, when we come to Christ, God takes us just the way we are. And he doesn't leave us that way. Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be horrible if God just left us? Left us in our brokenness and our, our enslavement to sin. No, he, he frees us. He changes us. Now, if you look at verse 12, you see another, apparently another common saying that the people in the Corinthian church would, would often repeat. You see it quoted there twice. All things are lawful for me. That, this is what they would say. I'm saved by grace, not by works. All things are lawful. Not Everything is permissible. Don't you come to me with your legalistic rules about how I have to behave. All things are lawful. 
the apostle, the apostle counters that saying with this. He says, okay, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All, all things are lawful be, for me, but I will not be dominated for, by anything. And what he was saying to them is, is, is guys, don't, don't, don't use the good news of grace as, as, as an excuse to sell yourself short on the power that God has to free you from the destructive effects of sin. You see, the, the fact that we're saved by grace doesn't make us immune to the destruction that sin can bring into our life. So, so God's word, it's, a, it's a, a word not only of grace, it's a word of freedom. God, God wants us to be set free from um, destructive sins in our life that bring shame and, and, and pull us away from God. And so this is why the main instruction the apostle has for us in, in, in this passage is what you see in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee. So I wonder what it would look like in your life for you to flee from sexual immorality. It, it, it might look different for different ones of us. It might mean for some uh, getting some kind of filters on your computer or getting rid of your computer because it's a snare for you. Uh, for some, it might mean um, not having a, a smartphone. For others, it might mean just staying away from seductive people or, or, or breaking off from relationships that, that are not good. The apostle says, flee from these things. Don't just... Don't just uh, you know, think about possibly, maybe, you know, taking some steps to avoid them. He says, flee from the destructive effects of these sins. Now, I, I, can, I can hear um, most of us, uh, be, because, listen, the struggle with sexual sin is so, can be so, so difficult. It would be easy for any of us to say, flee from sexual immorality. I don't think I can. I don't, I don't. I don't have the strength. I don't have the power to flee. Now, if you're if you are not a Christian, you've never come to Christ. It, it it might that might be true for you to say that I don't have the power to to flee. But if listen, if you've come to Christ in faith, that would not be true for you to say. A, a, a Christian should not say, "I don't have the power to flee from sin." Look at verse nineteen. What wonderful hope we see in verse nineteen. The apostle says this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? This, this, listen, those words were written not, not to super-Christians, not to the pastors or the missionaries or the elders or the deacons. This was written to every member of that church, even to the weakest um, Christian who was really, really struggling with, with, uh, with temptation and sins and patterns of behavior, Paul said to, to that person, the Holy Spirit of God lives within you. This is true for anyone who's ever come to Christ in faith. The infinitely powerful Spirit of Almighty God has come to dwell in you. And so when the Word of God says to you, flee, run, Break off these, for, uh, break away from these things that destroy you. The fact that the Spirit lives within you should give you great confidence to know that, yes, you do have the power from God to do this. So, God's word for us is a word of grace. No matter how you failed, 
Christ, if you've trusted Christ, have you trusted Christ? If you haven't, today he's inviting you to come to him. If you've trusted Christ, you were bought with a, a price. God doesn't see your sin anymore. You are forgiven. You are accepted. It's a word of grace, but it's also a word of freedom. The Spirit of God lives within you. You have more power available to you than, than you could imagine. And the word is, flee from these things that destroy you. So, um, to our brokenness, God speaks. He doesn't reject us because we're broken. He loves us. We're his children. He speaks of his grace. He speaks of his freedom. He wants us to know the fullness of his joy in Christ. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that in this very tender and important aspect of our life, our sexuality, you, you are not afraid to talk to us about us about it. You love us. You want us to know your grace and your forgiveness, your cleansing power. You also want us to know um, your power to set us free. So I pray for each one of us that, that as, we, uh, as we embrace your word to us and trust your love for us, we will see you more and more bringing to fruition everything that's expressed in the passage we're looking at today. And we pray this in the name of Christ.